Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dinty W. Moore, also known as Mr. S.A. Writer Guy. And I'm on Behind the Pros with Keisha Whitaker. I told you I was going to hook you up, didn't I? Denty W. Moore, Brevity Magazine, Denty W. Moore, Ohio University, Denty W. Moore, 10 books, Denty W. Moore. I got you this week on episode 30 of Behind the Pros. I also have the check-in on the other side of Denty's interview. I'll tell you what happened with McSweeney's. I'll tell you what the agent said about my memoir. And I have a giveaway for you, too. But first, here's Dinty. We're, we're, today we're going to talk about your two, you have many books. <laughs> we can't talk about them all, but we're going to talk about the latest one, Dear Mr. Essay Writer Guy, Advice and Confessions on Writing, Love, and Cannibals, and Between Panic and Desire, which is a cultural memoir. And in that book, you call it an unconventional, non-sequential, generational autobiography. Yeah, did I say that? <laughs> that was a few years ago, but I like the way that sounds. <laughs> so I want to get started, though, with your writing process. Um, what is your writing process like now as far as do you schedule time to write every day? Um, how do you approach it? I'm, I'm a firm believer, and certainly not the first person to say this, but that you put your rear end in the chair, whether you feel inspired or not. I'm a firm believer that the days I sit in front of my blank computer screen just hating myself and coming up with nothing at all are sort of paying it forward. And those days where nothing much good happens allow the, allows the days where the writing starts to flow and the ideas start to come and the sentences start to click together in place. You know, that those bad days allow the good days to come. So I have a five-day-a-week writing schedule, uh, usually very early in the morning once the coffee pot um, beeps three times to say the coffee is ready I get in front of my computer depending on what's going I teach I teach at Ohio University and, and head the creative writing program here so depending on my administrative and teaching duties I can do an hour some days and I'm lucky enough that I can do three hours other days when I'm deeply on deadline I've done five or six hour days but that's a lot of concentration and not not my usual mm. pattern so one one to three hours five days a week and some of that time is just spent looking at the screen thinking god you're stupid you have no ideas you've run out of good sentences and why are you even trying this mm. and that reminds me of what i'm kind of talking about with my students now i, I teach at penn state Berks, which we have that connection i met you for the first time at the creative nonfiction writers conference earlier this year in May, and I learned that you used to teach at a campus of Penn State as well. I did. I taught at the Altoona campus of Penn State. I taught, taught a little bit up at University Park, but that was only for two years. But spent, oh my God, goodness, about 15 years teaching uh, at Penn State Altoona and had, had, well, it was a great job and a great place and great students. I have nothing but fond memories of teaching there. And in what you're saying about your own writing process and the days of just kind of getting, when you're sitting there and feeling like crap, do you find that that's helpful to share with your students through the years that they hear that yeah, from somebody that, who I has, think, you know? I mean, I think that's helpful to share with my 19 and 20 year old students. I think it's helpful to share when I teach at these conferences where many of the students are in their fifties and sixties. I think, I think the myth persists for whatever reason that, you know, that really wonderful writers or genius writers, whatever, sit down in front of the typewriter and unbelievably perfect prose comes flowing out of their fingers immediately. And then, you know, beginning writers sit down in front of their typewriter or keyboard 
an unbelievably messed up, confused, misdirected, wandering prose comes out, and they think, oh, my goodness, I guess I just don't have it. But the truth mm. is that, that writers that, you know, writers that are amazing, you know, everybody has a different list of who these people are. I'll throw Joan Didion and Kurt Vonnegut and um, I'll just say those two for the moment. I'll, you know, I'll throw those writers out and say, the fact is that their first drafts were pretty lousy and their second drafts were not that good either. And their third drafts are probably where they started to get a sense of what they wanted to say in that short story or essay. And the, to me, the, the, the illusion of writing or the, the uh, sleight of hand of writing is that you write you know, 20, 30, 100 drafts of something until it looks inevitable, until it looks as if it just flowed out of your mm-hmm. fingers in one wonderful session. And then people read it and think, oh, my goodness, I wish I was as smart as Joan Didion. Oh, my goodness, I wish I had James Baldwin's descriptive skills. Oh, my goodness, you know, I, that Roxane Gay is so smart. Um, but, but that's the trick. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. writes lousy first drafts to varying degrees. Mine are really lousy. Um, Anne Lamott you know, has a whole chapter called Shitty First Drafts in her, in her writing guide. And the, 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 the thing that the beginning writers, and this is a long answer, so forgive me, the thing that beginning writers at 19 or 65 need to understand is, is your first draft, your second draft, even if you've fallen in love with it, is not your best work, that the, the, the professional work you see in magazines, the writers whose work you think is so wonderful, those writers have been through 20, 30, 40 drafts, polishing every sentence, and not just polishing the prose, but determining what it is they really want to say or what it is, if it's fiction, what it is the characters really would do or say in that situation. So it's it's to me, writing is the process of, of learning what it is in nonfiction, what it is you discover about your subject matter in fiction. I guess it's the same thing, but you're discovering something about an imaginary world and imaginary characters. I don't sit down knowing what I want to say. I sit down and mm-hmm. learn what I want to say by, by writing, rewriting, reading what I wrote, thinking what makes sense there, what sounds good but doesn't make sense. It's a, huh. I'm a firm believer in that iterative process. So for you, how do you know when you've gotten to something that is, let's say, quote-unquote, near finished, right, where you're ready to maybe send yeah. it out? I, I I read my work out loud at just about every stage. Um, I talk to myself while I'm writing. Uh, you know, if I'm writing fiction, I'll be saying the dialogue out loud. If I'm writing uh, nonfiction, I'm, I'm still saying the sentences out loud, and I've, I've learned to trust my ear. If I can, if I can read all the way through a draft of something, whether it's four pages or two hundred pages, and I'm not caught up short that some sentence just sounds clunky or some idea sounds unfinished, so I can just really read through it out loud slowly, and it feels complete. I've learned to trust that. But more often mm-hmm. than not, I read through it very slowly and go, "Oh, you've got a little more work to do here, buddy." Mm. Do you practice putting something away for a certain number of days or weeks? Every project's different, but there are certainly projects that I've put away um, for weeks, for months. Uh, the, the essay I've written that has been the most anthologized, it shows up in, in textbooks, it shows up in you know, best essays of, of, of this or best essays of that not Best American, but other sort of anthologies that collect, you know, essays that people like a lot, um, is called Son of Mr. Green Jeans. I started that about four years before I finished it, you know, worked on it, hated it, said this is really dull and whiny, put it away for months, pulled it out, worked on it some more, said, yeah, there's nothing here. But I'd done so much work at that point, I didn't throw it away. I put it, you know, I didn't put it in a drawer at this point. I'm putting it in a a folder in my hard drive. Um, and then I pulled it out like a year later and started working on it and, and had this idea of doing it as maybe an alphabetical list, an ABC Darien 
which I sort of stole from poetry. And then I worked on that for a while, and, and it, was, it was about animals and fatherhood. So I, I kept using, the you know, like A would be for aardvark, B would be for bears, C would be for something that begins with a C. Um, and, and then after a while I realized, well, that's not working. This, this is not enough stuff to say about animals and fathers, even though it's interesting that every animal species, the role of the father is slightly different. And I put it away, and then, you know, like, so now I'm like three years into it, having done other things, because I put it away and don't even look at it for months. And then I finally pull it out and say, wait a minute, this isn't just about animals and fathers, this is about fatherhood. So I started mm. bringing in popular culture and started bringing in my own life. And I kept the ABCD alphabetical you know, frame, but, but I, it took me like two years for the essay to go, boom, wait a minute, here's what you mm. want to do with this. Mm. And the actual the essay that you're talking about, Son of Mr. Green Jeans, a meditation on missing fathers, is the second chapter in Between Panic and Desire. And I think that oh, might right. be yes. a good it segue end up into in there. the um Yeah. And I so I re- I bought Panic and Desire on my Nook. And I, do you read on Nooks or are you hard, you know, copy person? I don't read on Nooks because I just haven't gotten to that point, but I'm not. I believe in technology, and I think I think books are changing, and I think in the future there'll be nooks and Kindles and other forms of of reading on a screen, and there'll be books, and I actually welcome that future because um, mm. it creates more opportunities. I think internet journals, online journals, are wonderful. They create more opportunities. So no, I don't read on a nook or Kindle, but not because you know, not because I'm one of those cranky old people who says. I refuse to change. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. It just mm-hmm. takes me. I spend so much time on a computer reading, writing that sometimes I don't want to stare at a screen when I'm reading. Mm-hmm. And I found that I, I feel like I, sh- I should have bought this one in hard copy because it's something that I really wanted to study and, like, you know, mark up. Mm-hmm. And you can take notes and things in the Nook, but there's really not any way of getting your notes out and seeing what you said in a cohesive manner. So, just bear with me because I'm going to try to scroll through and, and find some of the notes okay. that I um, wrote. But one of the first observations, obviously, was the structure of the work. The first entry in the essay is Alan Tim, right? Tim Allen, um, the ABC's right. home improvement dad. Um, and then throughout that, you pull um, the lives of these of, of different people, of, of actresses, of actors, of nature that. And you find like all, all these connections to fatherhood, um, it, all the way down to Z. I, I, I was just floored by this essay. So listening to you, you know, talk about that structure. Um, so for example, one of the notes that I've just scrolled <laughs> to says, "I marked." Um, you get to the entry inheritance. Um, and where you start to talk about my own Irish forefather was a newspaper man, owned a popular nightclub. And my note here says, by the time we get here, narrator has primed the reader for context. Um, what does that mean uh, to you? Um, I don't know. You wrote it, but I can guess. <laughs> I think, I think, I think, I mean, because the early entries talk about problematic people who people and animals who had problem people specifically who've had problematic relationships with their father Tim Allen being one example and also discusses mm-hmm. the the way various animal species where the male or father you know is in the in the process in, in many cases uh not doing a very good job of of keeping the the children or whatever you want to call the baby animals alive um so by the time you get I get to talking about myself I think you know the readers. The readers both wondering why is he why is he so focused on these father stories, and when they hear me talking about my own, it, it, I, I believe, I hope, you know, the reader in the reader's mind they think, oh, okay, so he's got a story to tell too, and that's why, you know, that's why he's got this on his mind. Mm-hmm. And so and my, my story is as my story is multi generational. It goes back to my great-grandfather, actually, and the, the series of fathers who were not able to connect with their sons. Mm-hmm. Do do you think that, 
So, and as you just said, what you do in the first half of that essay, really, it's like almost I, uh, was that when you when you step back, when you were editing it and you got to this part where you know it's inheritance, did you realize that you had been, It was, was it intentional that laying the groundwork before you introduce your own story? Or did it, you know, um, is it, it no, happen? It's always a combination. I mean, and I don't mean to cop out, but a lot of writing is moving paragraphs or moving sentences or moving chunks of information around because you want them in a, in a particular order to give the reader a particular experience. But sometimes you just sort of get the feel of a thing. So, you know, I'd say, I mean, I already told you the long story about looking at that mm-hmm. essay and then hating it and putting it away and then pulling it back out and hating it and putting it away. Um, I moved everything back and forth and back and forth trying to find the order that it fit in. And then, you know, maybe like maybe like a, a jazz musician, there, certain, there became a point where all of a sudden the, the, the song or the melody or the composition sort of popped into my mind and suddenly it felt like I knew where things should go. You know, like mm-hmm. suddenly after months of being stupid, suddenly I was like really smart. And I went, oh, no, this goes here. This goes here. No, no, I'm going to do this here. And then I'd read it back to myself, and I go, "Yeah, that actually seems to be working. It still needed to be fiddled oh. with, but you know, it's that, it's that, it's that burst of, of I'm not going to say genius. That sounds incredibly uh, overwrought. It's that burst of intelligence, uh, that really smart idea that only comes after months and months and months of fiddling. I mean, I think, I think that any inventor." Uh, I'm sure any painter would tell you that, but I think you know Steve Jobs or any anybody who who's famous for having invented some technology. They didn't they didn't have that idea when they were eating a cheeseburger. Uh, they had that idea after spending months, weeks, years, you know, staring at at this machine trying to figure out how do I put it together and make it work. So actually, at the end of that, or not not at the end. It's Q, you insert a quiz. Um, It's kind of based on some content that, you know, it's based on content that you've been talking about in the essay. And going back to our description of what you say later in the book, unconventional, non-sequential, generational autobiography, and looking at Dear Mr. Essay Writer Guy, which is actually, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's proper to call it mixed media, but, you know, you have your drawings, um, you have essays, you have uh, letters, excerpts, um, various things happening within the book. Uh, email. Yeah, one one of the one of the essays is is a compilation of face real actual Facebook posts um, mm-hmm. between myself and my friends trying to you know get an impression of of a tell a story kind of about how Facebook works. And one of the essays is actually exists on the internet as a as a Google Map with with you know flags. In, in Pittsburgh and Harrisburg and Baltimore and New York City, and those various flags, you know, tell a tell a story. So yeah, it is it is mixed media. Mm. And did you draw those napkins? There's a, a section of napkins. Yes, I, I did. know you're an artist. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know if I'm um, an art, I don't know if I'm an artist. I, I do doodles on cocktail napkins. But yeah, both the polar bear illustrations that show up throughout the book, and the essay that's drawn on cocktail napkins. Uh, that's my work. So taking that, applying what what I've seen in Panic and Desire in this, um, how do you gauge um, when to, I I don't want to say, well, how do you gauge when to be unconventional? Um, Does that make sense? Yeah. Or is it just part of your personality per se or how you perceive, you know, how you communicate with writing? I'm going to try to give a short answer here just to prove that I'm capable of it. Um, I think the time to be unconventional is when you feel like it, when you really feel like it, not not because you think you're supposed to, but you just feel like, you know, I want to try something different here. So tell me about the origin of Dear Mr. Essay Writer Guy. Um, you have a letters from – now, these are real letters from, like, Roxanne Gay and Phil Lopate. Yes. Are these yes? Steve Almond, <laughs> Roxanne Gay, Philip Lopez, <laughs> Diane Ackerman. Uh, they're real letters. Now I I I emailed them and said, "Here's what I'm up to. I'm going to write a book that I hope will be funny." So 
please ask me questions about writing or life or anything else. And it would be great if those questions were somewhat tongue in cheek. So yeah, they're real. Those are the que- those are the questions they sent me. Um, mm. Obviously, some of the questions are goofy because I signaled to them, feel free to send me goofy questions. And when you did that, did you have the idea for, I mean, had had you, like, sold the book already? I mean, I know you probably you already had an agent, but what's your kind of publishing process like in that area? Um, I'll, I'll say this for the listeners. Every, I've published about ten books now. Some I've written a bunch of them. Some of those are edited books I've edited or textbooks. The publishing process has been different for each and every one. And when I talk to people out there at the Creative Nonfiction Conference or other conferences, everybody's got a different story. There's no one way this all happens. But specifically to Dear Mr. Essay Writer Guy, uh, no, I had an idea. Okay, I'm going to do a book, and it's going to be questions from prominent writers, and I'm going to answer those questions and then write essays that somehow relate to my answer, and that it's going to be, I hope the reader has to decide this, not me. Uh, it's going to be funny. Uh, so that's when I contacted the authors and, and said, ask me a question. And I put the whole thing together. I mean, uh, the whole the book was complete before I uh, contacted my agent and said, you know, this is a book of humor and it's a book of essays. Neither of those are very popular, <laughs> but do you want to give it a shot? And she said, well, yeah, it's actually kind of funny. Let me see if I can sell it. Mm. Other books and, I've, I've sold. Other books I've sold based on a proposal where I hadn't written the book yet. I just had a really good idea, or oh, I hoped it was a really good idea. But this one I finished. And it's published by a ten p. Uh, excuse me, ten speed press at Berkeley. Yes. And I have to say, the yeah, book they're, is they're, when you go ahead. They're, they're an imprint of Random House, so it's you know the big publishing house, but they have these small imprints around, you know, many of them in different parts of the country that specialize. So, yeah. Intense. And, and I, I told you this at the beginning. I I haven't had a chance to finish uh, Dear Mr. Essay Writer Guy, so I would love in, sometime in the future to be able to have you back and um, talk about it more in depth. But um, I, I, oh, I think that's encouraging to hear that you – um, just had an idea and went with it and put it together and then said, you know, here, here's, here's this. What do you think you can do with this? Yeah, yeah. How long did the book take you to put together, dear Mr. Essay Writer Guy? I think probably about two years front to back. You know, it's always mm-hmm. it's always hard to judge because there's times you're working on it really hard and then you get distracted and work on something else for a while, but I think from the moment I had the idea, hey, wait a minute, how about an advice column for writers, but you know, a, a totally goofy, irreverent, um, humorous advice column for writers book. I think from the moment I had that to the moment, you know, the, my editor at Ten Speed said, yeah, this is done. We're going into production. Was was two years. Mm. I'm going back to my notes here in. Um between Panic and Desire. I remember reading, being really engaged with the opening of the book in which you are driving down the town, driving to see these towns. And um, I'm just trying to go, remind me please never to use the notes to try to do this again because I am having a mess (laughs) time with it. I'll send you a postcard tomorrow. (laughs) I wondered when I was reading it if you... Um. Okay, so it, it, when you did that, did you know that that's why? Did you know that that's why you were doing it, or did this come back to you when you decided to write the book? Yeah. Um. So the the beginning of the book between Panic and Desire tells the story of me visiting these two towns in Pennsylvania. They're real towns. They're very near. Um. Punxsutawney, which people know because of the groundhog, Punxsutawney Phil. But the one town is named Panic, the other town is named Desire, and they're just up the road from one another. Very small towns, almost crossroads. 
Um, when I, I, I'm a guy who likes to look at maps, and when I noticed there were two towns close together and they had panic and desire, I said, I'm going to go there. And I just thought, that's weird. I want to look at it. So, no, I didn't have a book in mind in any way, shape, or form then. Um, after I went there and, and, and went to these two little crossroads towns, Panic and Desire, I wrote a very short, um, this was back when the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper had a Sunday magazine. I wrote a very short piece, be, be, I think it, I don't, well, it wasn't called Between Panic and Desire, but it was about these two towns uh, for the Philadelphia Inquirer Sunday magazine, probably a 700-word piece that went at the, sort of the back of the magazine. And... That was published, and then it was about six or seven years later that I started working on this book, this unconventional, non-sequential uh, memoir. And I thought, well, that, that might be a part of it. And it, again, like you know, I explained in my process, I put it in there and I pushed it around. And I said, wait a minute, this whole book is about panic and desire, you know, the mm. the emotional states of panic and desire. So wouldn't this make a good introduction? And that's when I took this essay I'd written for the Philadelphia Inquirer, sort of shoved it to the front of this book, made some adjustments so it would, I hope, open up the book and sort of sort of establish the themes of emotional panic and emotional desire and how, how it was for me to live in the 1970s and 80s uh, all the way up to uh, 9-11 in 2001. Mm-hmm. And I was born in um, 79, so reading some of the things that you're writing, but with cultural, pop culture references, some I, you know, I know of, and then some I didn't know, but intrigued me to say, oh, but, you know, I can look this up, or, oh, I would, I'm interested in this, but I feel like there's um, a universal, uh, a unit, there, there are universal sentiments that you communicate through your through the way they write through your retelling and analyzing these things and one of the places I had that moment is where there is a chapter where you're talking about a car found in the in the in the forest where you guys find this car yes, and it, yes. Yeah. at the end of the chapter you say something like darn this thing uh you say something like um it, 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 the car was spe- there's this you're you're being told there's this longing that the car would bring power and you know you would have it soon and I identified um clearly you know with that feeling and that desire that ah, panic and desire but um I guess when you're writing are you um are you aware that you know when when you're crafting something like that that it is universal or is it really specific to that piece or time um oh gosh that's a really good question um i th- i think i mean it's it, as i said earlier it's a messy process it doesn't necessarily move in easy identifiable stages but i think when i'm writing an essay or in that case an essay that has a lot of memoir in it but is also talking about Aldo Huxley um, and and some of his ideas about the future. Um, my first my first job is always my first goal is always just try to get it down, try to get your memories down, try to get your ideas down, try to get as much solid material onto the page. And I'm not really worried about whether it's something that is universal or as my students mm-hmm. like to say nowadays, relatable. Um, but I do, as I get further into the drafting process, start reading it and thinking, okay, this is interesting to me, but it's interesting to me because it happened to me, or it's mm-hmm. interesting to me because it's my idea. Why would it be interesting to anyone else? And midway through a four-page essay, midway through a 20-page essay, midway through a 200-page book, I mean, midway through the, you know, whether whether on the tenth draft or the twenty-fourth draft, um, I'm asking myself that question a lot. Well, why would what? Why am I keep am I keeping the reader awake on this page, or am I putting the reader to sleep? Why would the reader care about this? Have I created some context for the reader to care about this? I mean, those are the questions I'm asking at that stage. Hmm. 
Did you change any of the names? Do you change names when you write nonfiction? Because you talk about, in one chapter, you say your best buddies, um, this might be the Green Jeans chapter, Hagen and DiBartello. Yeah. Uh, I changed both of those names because there was mm. a lot of drug use in that chapter, and I didn't necessarily, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't my place to, to out these guys as, as heavy drug users in college. Um you know, and I teach creative writing, so creative nonfiction, so we talk about that a lot. I, I, I believe that you that you can't, that you shouldn't write about anything, put anything in your memoir or nonfiction, unless it really happened. And mm-hmm. memory is kind of fuzzy, so sometimes you know all you're telling the reader is, "This is my best effort to get the memory of what happened down here correctly." But you know, for a minor character, it doesn't matter whether his name was Dave or Danny. It doesn't matter whether her name was. Mary Carol or Mary Kate, um, it doesn't change the essence of the story. So, you know, the, the line I the line I think is the borderline of, of creative nonfiction is, you know, these are the, these things really happened. I'm not making them up, and these things really happened in this way. I'm not sexing them up because I think it would make for a better story. Um, and if mm. you're doing that, then that then that's fine. I don't I don't you know. I, Unless the person is a, is, an, is a is a famous public figure, um, I don't think it really matters if you've if you've changed the first name. Um, mm. I've had sometimes, like I said, this was about guys I did drugs with in college. Um, it kind of made sense to change their names and give them uh, if they want to announce, "Yeah, that was me," then they can do that. But I wasn't going to put their their real names down there. Mm-hmm. And actually, in that chapter, you have uh, the World Trade Center section, and I'm not sure actually what chapter I'm in now because okay, I'm in three bad trips, 1968 <laughs> to, to 77. If, if you're hoping five. if you're hoping to get a sponsorship from the Kindle people or the Nook people, you might you might be blowing it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like, what is my duty? Is my duty to try to make money, or is my duty to tell the truth? Like, it's good for stuff that yeah. you just you know, kind of pleasure reading, but if you want to study something, like, I really need to study this book, it's, like, not good. So, um, the World Trade Center scene, section in this chapter, um, and I put a lot of notes where you transition and you introduce, like, you set the scene for time, and that section opens with, I over, excuse me, I overslept the morning of my college graduation. Um, and then you tell you, you know, that your friends came to celebrate, and then there are pieces through that, and then we turned a corner. Um, and then it's like until I became separated. And so through, later through the piece, um, and I feel throughout your narrative, you do really um, well with, you know, transitions, not just that are not just time transitions, but also like, I guess maybe we could say narrative arc transitions or like transitions into emotional something that else is happening in the larger scheme of the the piece. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, it's not it's not just the time transitioning, but something is some, the narrator is about something's about to change, something's moving that's bigger than just the time. Yeah, and I think I think that is intentional in the piece it's it's something that's happening in my in my life i mean it's the transition from you know graduating college to oh my god what what does the future hold um i was one of those people who graduated from college and sort of like i don't know where i'm going i don't know what i'm going to do um but it also i think now i'm writing that chapter which is a memory about being on top of the world trade center i'm writing that chapter after even though this happened in the 1970s, I'm writing that after 9-11 when the World Trade Towers were not there anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think my my understanding of the tragedy that's about to come and the, what these towers symbolize to me and I think other readers, I think the, I hope, and I think that the the sense of that sort of came into that chapter. How do you write about the trade, World Trade Center um, after it's gone and gone in that horrible, horrible way without without some of that information, not one information, some of that emotion coming into the piece? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, 
I also have a note here about a rumpled pinstripe shirt. Um, and that I think is the shirt that you're wearing when you you're talking about working on the co- working on the college paper, I think. Um, yeah, and yeah. then the shirt comes back up several times, um, and it begins to sort of paint a picture for me of the, of the narrator as you know, you know the narrator has already become, but really you know as a character, um, and you, you give the narrator certain traits or quirks or things that we recognize, and I wonder how you work on crafting little details like that when you're editing um, or on a first draft. Yeah. Um, Usually in a first draft, I leave them out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like I'm so busy telling the story. I forget that the reader has no idea who I am. Or if Mm -hmm. I'm talking about my, you know, my friend Herkman, I forget that the reader hasn't ever seen the guy and has no idea that he has a funny nasally voice. Um, so that's mm-hmm. kind of the layer of, of sensory detail I usually add in later. Mm-hmm. Um, but since you raised the question, I think, you know, in fiction, everybody knows you have to build the character, and you have to build the character by sort of putting layer layer upon layer of clay until you've got a living, breathing individual that you've created on the page. In nonfiction, people forget that because they think, okay, well, this is a story about my father, so when I say my father... I, you know, this is what he looks like, but the reader doesn't know that, or this is what he sounds like, but the reader doesn't know that, or this is, this is the way uh, he makes funny chomping noises when he has his bologna sandwich at the, at the, at the lunch table. Um, so I, when I write nonfiction and when I teach nonfiction, I, the, the real people that we're writing about, once we put them on the page, we have to remember that they're characters, um, mm. meaning you have to build them up in the reader's mind so that they seem real or the reader's not going to care about them or, or, or be able to follow them. So yes, it, my building of myself or other people as characters in that book is very intentional. Uh, it, it It's one of the things that I don't do very well in my first draft, which is why I need to do so many drafts. Mm. Going on to later in the book, chapter seven, which is the part two, beginning of part two, paranoia. And you have an essay that is, I don't know if mimicking is the right word, but is um is written like it's a call to the panic and desire psychic hotline. And within that right. essay, you have the, the psychic person in italics and then uh, no, you're in italics, and the psychic person is, you know, in regular print, and you're going back and forth <laughs> with this person. Right. And um, where did you get the idea for that? Oh, I don't remember. I don't remember. I was probably having a, mm-hmm. a weird day. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm pushing the envelope there because the the psychic in the in the psychic hotline turns out to be Trisha Nixon, who was a real person, the daughter mm-hmm. of President Richard M. Nixon, also somebody I had a mad crush on when I was a a teenager because she was about four or five years older than me. Um, and I did not have a phone conversation with with Trisha Nixon uh, on a psychic hotline, and I I try very I try very hard, and there and this is comes in the midst of a couple of chapters that deal with. Um, my use of drugs at that point in time. Um, but I try very hard to signal the reader, and I think readers understand that, mm-hmm. you know, at this point it's, it's, we're into the realm of, of speculation and invention. This is what, mm-hmm. this is what my, this is what my id is like. This is, these are the, these are the paranoid and confused voices in my head mixing up my lust for, my lust that's 30 years old for, you know, a 21 year old Trisha Nixon. Um, so, I mean, that's that's the, to, I think, you know, I wrote the book, um, so it, maybe I don't know it that well, but to me that's the weirdest chapter in there, but it was sort of a transition I needed to get from the the 70s and move forward and sort of introduce the the confused and panicked adult, Dinty W. Moore. What I think is interesting about the Trisha Nixon is that, you know, throughout the book you have the theme, you know, fatherhood, and then obviously she had her and her father, and that comes up, you know, is reflected in that exchange there. 
Um, and then there was a part where she's telling you about all the things that have happened to you. Um, the symbols of safety and security came apart in your life. Your father could not be counted on to protect you or your family. Your mother receded into her own shuttered bedroom. The president was killed, and then his brother, and it goes on. And then I wrote, um, Tricia, listing personal and public trauma really hits home. I'm good. I'm glad, I'm glad it hit home. I've seen that, Julie. You're always hoping to hit home, so thank you for that compliment. Um, and one of the reasons it's, Tricia Nixon is in there, I, mean, I kept saying I had a crush on her, which I did. Um, one of the reasons Tricia Nixon is in there is that her father, Dick Nixon, um, and his connection to the Vietnam War, his connection to the Vietnam War protesters um, on the other side, uh, his connection to Watergate, his connection to how my generation lost faith in government because of Watergate. Um, Richard Nixon shows up in, in five or six of those chapters. Uh, so you know, thematically, that's one of the reasons I brought Tricia in there. And, um, you know, her voice, the voice of Tricia does sound different from what I was familiar with in, in hearing the narrator's voice, your voice throughout the book. Is that something, do you remember concentrating on that when you were editing it and trying things with sense and structure or whatever to try to make her sound different? Oh, definitely. I mean, part of, part of it was because it is such a talky chapter. It's, it's you know, it, it's it's a imagined phone call. So if you're on the phone, it's sort of disembodied voices. I can't describe the person on the other end of the line, and I can't. I don't talk much about what I'm doing because I'm just holding the phone talking. Um, so one way to build character in that setting is is through the voice, um, the way that they talk, and also you know the the, the conceit. I'm I'm pretending that Tricia Nixon um, went on to become a telephone psychic, a telephone hotline or a psychic hotline, you know, psychic. And so I actually I worked hard to get sort of the voice of the psychic who's who's at first seems to be sort of encouraging and pulling you in and trying to keep you online because the more time you spend online, the more money you make. Mm-hmm. But eventually she's actually is psychic because she's telling me things that I don't know, you know, and, and, and suddenly this idea um, that she's not just, a flim-flam psychic, but is actually has psychic abilities. It's, it's something I, I tried to work on, you know, as a as a, as a progression in both mm-hmm. that brief chapter and in, in how her voice changes throughout that chapter. Mm-hmm. Makes me sound real smart, like I knew what I was doing. Again, you know, first draft, I don't know. The second draft, I don't know. Eventually, I started to, you know, put two and two together, and I must have written that chapter over 30 times or more. Mm. So do you think, in a side question, do you think that a lot of your, I know you say you sit down and write five days a week, so, I mean, do you think that, you think that a lot of your work just, well, I, I guess I'm asking, <laughs> do you 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 just end up collecting a bunch of stuff that you can go back to and craft into essays, and maybe some of it's good, maybe some of it's not, just by doing that process and is that where a lot of this stuff, at least in Panic and Desire, uh, between Panic and Desire comes from or came from? Um, well, Panic and Desire, like, I don't know how many chapters are in there. Let's say 12. Five of them are essays that were published previously somewhere else but were memoirs. So if I'm writing an unconventional, non-sequential memoir about my own life, it turns out that they fit into the book pretty well. They told parts of the story I wanted to tell. And then I've lost track of my math here, but about seven or eight of them I wrote specifically for the book to fill in gaps or to make associative leaps. Um, but every time I sit down, to, you know, so I work, I think I understand the question. I work five days a week, sometimes an hour, sometimes more. Um, I always think I'm working on something. Like I'm, I say, okay, now I'm going to work on an essay about, you know, um, the time I jammed a pencil into my finger and, and the pencil broke off and a piece of lead got stuck in there and and people mm-hmm. were worried I had lead poisoning, even though it turns out there's no lead in pencil lead. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm writing an essay about that. So I, you know, but often I start an essay thinking it's about 
that, you know, and it ends up being about something else entirely. So I don't, I don't just sit down and like write and think, oh well, I'll just write and see what happens. I always think I'm working on a project. It's just sometimes I learn, you know, two weeks or a month or a year later that that the project I thought I was working on has transformed itself into something different. Hmm. Um, and I'm and in chapter eight, baseball, hot dogs, mescaline, is that how you say it? And Chevrolet. Mescaline. 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 Um and in that, yeah. hmm? it's a it's a Spanish Mexican word, so you know, I don't know. I'm sure they say it different depending on where you live. I say mescaline. Okay. Um I I highlighted this description. You have here, it was midsummer and the weeds and ferns were so plush underfoot that we didn't need our kickstands. We simply let our schwins and huffies fall onto the soft green carpet. Then we bounded forward on foot, descending on the abandoned car as if it were the long lost grail. And that sentence to me, it was, it moved so um, evenly. And I just really mm-hmm. could the 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 weeds and the fern and um I was imagining that you know I I could just really see it and I guess I'm just curious about if you not necessarily this specific scene, uh, detail or or scene not really scene but this specific description do you remember crafting that or how do you craft things like that how how do you access your memory um, and how do you turn that into, you know, just enough on the page? Um, well, that's an example of, I'll bet you if you read the first draft of that essay, it said we dropped our bikes or we rode our bikes and then we saw a car. <laughs> I mean, that's about as good. Uh, that's about as, you know, if the sentence was that good uh, mm. in my first draft, then, you know, I was probably having a good day. And, you know, I, go, I have a strong editor's voice in my head after years of, of, of working, you know, trying to get my work ready to be published and, and working with editors. And, you know, and that voice is saying, that's not enough. You've got to put the reader there. Let the reader feel like the reader was there. Let the mm. reader experience it. You know, what, what are the, you know, what, what is, what, what's on the ground? What's, what do we, you know, don't just say bike, take Schwinn and Huffy. That's what the bikes were in those days. And so mm-hmm. a lot of it is just saying to myself, no, you got to give the reader more than that. Hmm. Uh, in terms of the the rhythm of the sentence, that's the that's another example of I probably read that sentence out loud to myself 120 times, you know, in various iterations of various revisions, and just kept moving words around till it sounded right, you know, to my yeah. ear. It's like, okay, that sounds about right. I, I like the music of that. And I'm scrolling through here. I think I'm actually getting the hang of this now. I might have to just go through the book chronologically. So I get to the next passage that I highlight in that same chapter uh, where you have... And so this chapter is interspersed with, I'm guessing, lyrics of the um, lyrics of a song, right? From Possibly? Or I, I don't know. Which chapter this is uh, Sorry. Aldous Huxley, Doors of Perception? Yes. Is that a book? Uh, yeah, right? it's a... It's, uh, it's it's he's a right he's an author not a, not a songwriter so it's oh okay. it's words from his book and so you have words from his book interspersed throughout there and then um, there is a section of his book uh, the sec- the sentences at the sight of it I was suddenly overcome by enormous merriment that's his words. And then you have sort of a prose poem, which I kind of pegged it as a prose poem before I got to the part where you say, I wrote that breathless bit of prose roughly 25 years ago, banged it out on a royal typewriter while tanning shirtless on the lawn behind my apartment building. And um, so I think later on you do go to say, maybe, no, it's not here where you say is it prose or is it prose poetry or something. But I, I highlighted that and I made me wonder um, how do you save your? How do you? What is your? Well, how do you store your work? Like, what's that like for you? You have just boxes where you're going back to and digging through, or do you, you know? Oh well, okay, I mean, I was say, well, it's all on my hard drive. But you're right. I wrote that. I wrote that a long, long time ago. That was. Uh, I didn't save much from that era. I wasn't actually writing much back then. I thought I was going to be an actor or a modern dancer, 
but uh, I, for some reason, that little what you're now calling a prose poem, I don't know, I don't know what I thought it was. Mm. Um, it was just stuck in the bottom of a drawer and and moved along with me when I grabbed my papers. Mm. So we're almost coming to the end of uh, my time with you, but I want to scroll through. I'm scrolling quickly. I want to get to the chapter that is. Uh, it's. I think it's called nine. Uh, hold on. Yes. Number this nine. is one of the ones that has like just captivated me in uh, so many different ways. Uh, how do I do this? Chapter. Okay. Yes. <laughs> chapter nine, and the title of chapter nine is number nine, and. It opens with a quote from John, a uh, lyric from John Lennon, right? I believe in everything until yes. it's disproved. So I believe in fairies, the mist dragons, like all exist, even if it's in your mind. Um, and the chapter, from what I see, the way it's laid out here on the nook, is interspersed with the number nine. And it's all about, it's about the Beatles, um, and it's about you, and it's about things that happened in the world and the weird connection of number nine and you finding out about the, the strawberry fields forever. Superstitions, this, superstitions and coincidences. Mm-hmm. Superstitions and coincidences. Uh, so Charlie Manson like, comes into it at one point. Yeah. And something like that, did you... I guess I'm re- I was just so amazed at... Um, Oh, wait, here's one of these examples of the transitions. I'm sorry. This is, I'm really excited. <laughs> so you say, where is it? Okay. Um, so you're going through um, and you're talking about how John Lennon actually um, said he liked the number nine. It nines his number. Um, and then you say, after another literal numeral nine, you say that the Beatles drifted back to the, the Beatles drifted back to one. Back, that is, the solo career is pretty soon after the, quote, Paul is dead, and quote, debacle petered out. And so I don't, I just highlighted that transition, and I just felt like, I felt so cunning. Uh, I, I don't know, it, it kind of hit me. So um, in terms of, you can respond to that if you like, or you can, I'd like to hear about the origin of that essay, if you remember um, about it. Well, the root of that essay is the there was a if you were alive in the sixties and seventies, and I know you weren't, or just barely. Um, the you know, the Beatles, the Beatles were so huge, and but at one point, they came out with a White Album, and there was a very strange song at the end of the White Album, um, and you hear Paul's no, I'm sorry, John's voice going number nine, number nine, number nine. You know, for no reason in the middle of that song. And then, uh, it's hard to explain for people who don't know about this, but at a certain point, people started to play that song backwards. And they thought they heard, you know, voices from the grave of, of you know, saying that, that John was dead or Paul was dead or all these sort of strange things. And people got very superstitious and spooked out. And I got very spooked out listening on the radio to what ended up just being crazy theories and, and it turns out if you play most songs backwards you hear strange voices if you try hard enough to hear them so it started going you know since this is a book about me and my formative influences certainly the Beatles and 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 that that weird period where we thought you know the devil was speaking through the Beatles songs when played backwards um, it sort of started with me just trying to recreate that and go back into that and then I started doing research on on the number on John Lennon's relationship to the number nine, and mm. it was a very important number to him. And then that led to this, and that led to another thing, and that led to Charlie Manson, and that led to who Charlie Manson, who who believed, you know, the Beatles were sending messages to him, and those messages were telling him to kill people. I mean, he was crazy; he still is crazy, but it's sort of like. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized there's all this crazy superstition and coincidence and conspiracy people theory and and uh, I just you know I just started collecting that stuff and trying to make an essay out of it. Hmm. I actually I'm I'm scrolling through here. I have one. I'll have to share a spooky thing. Well, I don't know if it's spooky, but. Uh, 
Brown when I was reading. And 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 something about the pacing of it has a uh sort of not horror flick but sort of like uh not I don't know, supernatural vibe to it or just this pacing is just like I don't know. You're just kind of being led along very slowly, and you're not, and just being told these things. Like you could see somebody just sitting there, pointing on their fingers, like and this, and this, and this. And just I, I, so that that pacing really reflects, like, kind of what the theme of the piece is. I think. Um, let's see. I'm looking for. Okay, so one of the sections you talk about um, in February of 1974. Samuel J. Bick, uh, distraught that Nixon, he tries to hatch a plan to, um, distraught that Nixon had ignored struggling small businessmen, hatched a plan to hijack a commercial airliner and coerce the crew to crash into the White House, you say. So, and then you explain yeah. that um, scenario, and then at the end, after the guy, the crew said they couldn't go anywhere, he shoots the crew, and then he shot himself, and he's, this was 27 years before 9-11. The plane was a DC-9. And so obviously the reader now has begun to start to see, pick up automatically connections of nine, and we're like becoming, looking for something as well. And so I looked at the number 27 that you have written out here, and I said, whoa, two and seven is nine. (laughs) I caught you. (laughs) So, uh yeah, I just was like, wow. <laughs> yep, that's I mean, and and that's what we do. The human beings are hardwired to try to look for connections to things. So, mm-hmm. you know, we we get caught up in things like, oh my God, two and seven is nine, and it was a DC <laughs> nine, and you know, mm-hmm. and and it, that's kind of the point of the essay. I'm glad mm-hmm. I'm glad it worked for you. <laughs> hey, it, it worked, and I don't know what that says about my mind, but it did work. I'm still amazed by it. Well, I hope, I hope it worked for a lot of I hope it worked for a lot of people. I mean, it's that's the idea. You want to reach people who even people who weren't alive in the paranoid, mm-hmm. you know, late '70s, early '80s after Watergate. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly, certainly thank you for taking the time to. Talk to me today on Behind the Pros. I'm truly, truly honored to speak with you, and I would love to have you back again um, to talk about Dear Mr. Essay Writer. Actually, you know, I just ordered the book for my one of my classes, and I would love to have you in the future maybe do a live podcast with them. We can dial you in, and they can ask you questions. Sure. That would be great. Sure, that would work. All right. Before I let be you great. go, that would be great. I want to ask you before I let you go, what do you think your writing superpower is? Oh my goodness! Uh, oh, I do know what it is. It's uh, stubbornness. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. I, I, I I wrote I wrote three books that never got published, and then I wrote a fourth book, and it got published. Uh, I wrote a bunch of short stories that never got published, and then I finally wrote one, and it got published, and and then you know I, I can I I just keep I try, I fail. I mean, I'm getting better at it. I've been at it for many years, but I try, I fail. I, I get mad, I get up, and I, I try harder. Mm. And if you know, if I let, if I let a few rejections convince me that I'm not very good at this, I should stop. Then I would have stopped 25 years ago, and would have accomplished none of what I've been lucky enough to accomplish. You better put that in your writer's pipe and smoke it. Okay, Dinty ain't playing with you. You better write. And that's why Behind the Pros is here to inspire you to write and help you learn about writing. And if you are an aspiring memoirist um, or like mixed genres or unconventional structure, I definitely encourage you to check out Between Panic and Desire and then listen to this show again because I hope that some of the things that we talked about will make a lot more sense to you. The book is inspiring, especially for me who went to school for nonfiction, the new school. Hey, Sharice. And, um, you know, I was working on a thesis in uh, 2011 and Sue Shapiro, my mentor, you know, really 
pushed me um, and supported me in what I was working on, even though I really was the reluctant memoirist, as uh, Faith Adieli called me at Vona. And, um, you know, but I, I've been toying with this project for the last several years. I've changed it because I didn't like how it was initially. And now I have five new chapters that I'm really kind of ambiguous about. Like, I want to write humor and I feel like it's just kind of too serious for me. So that's why reading Dency's book was kind of like, huh, it doesn't have to be all a big serious womp. You know, this happened to me. Wah, wah, wah. Um, so it's something to think about. But before I <laughs> thought about that, I decided to send out my memoir to an agent because I just wanted to get the project over with, you know, and, and be able to move on and do other things. And once I did that, I did move on and do other things, such as submitting to McSweeney's, which I told you about last week. But the agent did get back to me. And it's an agent that I met through Sue Shapiro, six degrees of Sue Shapiro, I'm telling you. And Renee Zuckerbrot, who's also Sean Ennis's agent. I interviewed him a few weeks ago about his great short story collection, Chase Us. And she responded to me about a month later. Here's what she said. The memoir has plenty to recommend it, not least your clear, confident, and your intimate voice. You quickly establish what feels like an effortless rapport with the reader. However, I have to confess, I didn't quite click with the narrative style. The pacing felt somewhat rushed to me and with a lot of information packed into that short opening chapter, whereas I would have liked to see the story unfold more organically as I got to know you on the page. Given my mixed reaction, I think it's best if I pass. And I wasn't sad when I got that. <laughs> I was actually kind of happy um, that she, you know, because i ambiguous about it in the first place. Um, and I'm happy now that I can put it to the side. And I know exactly why it feels rushed <laughs> because I was rushing. And um, it's because, you know, I'm ambiguous about the story. I guess I say all that to say, if you're working on a project, um, take the advice that I heard from Elmaz Abenadir, who I hope I'm not pronouncing her last name incorrectly, at Vona. She said, write the book you want to write. And uh, and you see from Denti's interview, that's what he does. He writes what he wants to write. Um, he writes what he finds enjoyable and writes what he believes in. And that's important as a writer, because if you do get a book deal, it's just going to be you and that book and the book tour. And when there's three people sitting out there in the bookstore and two of them work there, you have to care. <laughs> you have to be excited about that book. Okay. So there you have it. McSweeney's, I want to tell you about. So I told you last week that I submitted to them again and they gave me a really awesome rejection letter. I'll also share that rejection letter with you. Um, they responded, really like the premise here, but the execution doesn't spark enough laughs. The strength of the piece is in how it skewers all the buffoonery of the presidential campaign. Also liked how the game has a built-in rule that disenfranchises players who are already from disenfranchised voting areas. But overall, the piece never generates enough momentum for it to really click for me. Regrets. Thanks for the read, nonetheless. Now, if you are an obsessive submitter to McSweeney's like I am, you know that this is not their typical rejection letter. Usually, they send you a letter that says, hey, hope your face gets the message, thanks for the read. Or, hey, hope your neighbor stops harassing you, good luck, thanks for the read, we'll pass. Um, and so, that's what it usually is. And when I saw this, my spider senses went up. Even though he didn't ask me to rewrite, what do I have to lose? And I take direction pretty well. I hate drafting, but I love revising because I feel like it's so much easier. And so I took the directions and I revised it. So I thought it had more momentum. I added what I thought were more jokes and I sent it off again with a cover letter that might be kind of questionable. And I did hear back from them. 
Uh, I'll tell you what they said, but I'll tell you on episode 31. But you don't got to wait until episode 31 to win a new book. The Introvert Entrepreneur. Amplify your strengths and create success on your own terms. Out on Penguin Random House at the beginning of this month. It's by Beth Bulow. And I think it sounds like a book for writers. Usually writers are kind of introverts. They're weird and quirky people. And this sounds like uh, a lot of it might um, fit us. So here's how you can win the book. Tweet at Behind the Pros this weekend with your favorite moments from the Dinty W. Moore interview. The more you tweet at Behind the Pros, the more you are entered to win. Okay, that's how you do it. We got all weekend. Get your entries up and Penguin Random House uh, will ship out that book to you and I'll announce the winner on Monday. Next time on Behind the Pros, I have an interview with Jessica Contreras. She is an award-winning writer and a journalist at the Washington Post. This is a live podcast that I recorded with my students at Penn State Berks. So I'm excited to share that with you. And um, coming up, we still have some special compilation episodes and feature episodes from Creative Nonfiction Magazine. I have a surprise interview. I'm getting back on my editor kick. Remember, I was interviewing the editors about the writers and I got away from it because I ran out of time. But I'm coming back. I got a really big one for you. So make sure you're signed up on iTunes, subscribed on iTunes, um, follow me on Twitter, and you can still send me your shout outs, info at Behind the Pros, if you got publication shout outs, and I will share them with the rest of your Behind the Pros or peeps. Thanks for bringing me into your electronic device one more time. Behind the Pros music is by UK artist Redverse West Boyle. You can find him on SoundCloud. The show is hosted and executive produced by me, Keisha Whitaker, from an ottoman that I bought on Craigslist in Hoboken, but now sits in the living room of an apartment in Pennsylvania. Until next time, listen, learn, and write. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.